Welcome to the Future Now Media Podcast, where we believe a future now is a future one. I'm your host, Peggy Kim, and I'm the founder and president of the Future Now Media Foundation, which is a nonprofit leadership incubator for the media and entertainment industry. In this podcast series, we'll be talking to some of today's top industry leaders, executives, and professionals. We'll also hear about their personal and professional career journeys, what makes them tick, how they got to where they are today, and what they've learned along the way. And we'll also share some of the best content from our Future Now live events. So stay tuned. Today's episode features an interview with Joan Gilman, the former Chief Operating Officer and President of Time Warner Cable Media, which took place at the 2017 Future Now Media and Entertainment Conference. Our interviewer is Melody Hum, a writer and reporter who covers entrepreneurship, technology, and startups at Yahoo Finance. In their discussion, Joan shares about her career journey, her experience as a woman working in the telecom industry, and how she rose to the C-suite. Joan also shares her thoughts on what good leadership looks like, the characteristics you need to be successful, and how you can start preparing now to be the best leader you can be. Take a listen. The topic of this conversation is leadership. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear when you started working for Senator Chris Dodd, um, sort of the lessons you learned about what makes a good leader and how that can transcend industries. Excellent. Well. First of all, working in Washington is an amazing experience because you are surrounded by all types of leaders. And one of the first things you realize is leadership does not come in one size or shape. Uh, leadership is very personal, and yet it can be measured in similar, in similar ways. It can be measured by success. It can be measured by being able to move your agenda forward, inspiring people to support an idea that you have to make a business better or make the world a better place. But what Chris Dodd and working on Capitol Hill in the US Senate taught me is all the work that goes behind leadership. To build consensus behind an idea, and it doesn't matter if you're building consensus in business or in politics, the amount of work you have to do to communicate with stakeholders and understand their reaction to the idea and understand how to win them over. And there are lots of different names for the strategies. But Chris was a great mentor because he and his staff would coach us at a very young age, at 22, you need to go and figure this out, but we're going to coach you. And we're going to talk to you about how you talk to CEOs, how you talk to the heads of unions, how do you talk to parents that care deeply about an issue and they want to see a policy to improve the world and improve their community. How do you talk to each of these stakeholder groups and then how do you try to build support broadly across coalitions? So. I I will tell you that at the time, I did not expect the leadership lessons from Washington to translate as easily and readily to business, but they transferred immediately. Uh, So even today, in an environment that seems everybody's a little tired of politics, you can learn from local politicians, state politicians, federal politicians, people at all levels, as to how effectively they move an agenda forward. And if they're failing, study why they're failing. 
because it's extremely helpful as you develop your leadership skills. Yeah, I think sometimes learning from the failures Absolutely. is more crucial than the success. And there are lots of failures to study. I mean, I could see in just Chris Dodd's office, we would have <laughs> policy failures and we'd have policy successes. And we'd see what didn't work and why it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to rack up a study of the failures. Probably more failures, you know, eight failures to one or two successes. Right. And similar to the political arena, which your constituents, aka America is your audience. Time Warner Cable, America was your audience as well. Correct. So you were in charge of around 1,500 employees. I was. How did you manage to figure out, you know, being a mentor to them, actually being actionable and taking and being goal-oriented, but also figuring out what consumers wanted. I mean, I mean, it's a triple it goal. It is, but um, let me start by saying you, what I think most people have in their journey professionally, uh, when you're a student, you're focused on yourself. You have to study to get good grades. You are learning the subject matter. The leap from being a student to being a leader is thinking less about yourself and more about everybody else around you. And having a bigger picture and understanding how all of the people fit into that, it can be a puzzle, fit into that picture. So when you're leading a team, 1,500 people in 100 offices, the most critical information I needed to lead that team is what obstacles they were facing every day. So they were given goals. Some had sales goals, some had technology goals, they had to roll out a new piece of technology. Some had financial goals and reporting goals. And then they get stuck. And if you're a leader, you want to get them unstuck faster than any other leader if you're a high-performing team. And your role as a leader is to get them unstuck. Your role as a leader is to set the vision, hopefully with their input, so it is everybody's bought into the vision. Then it's giving them the resources they need to be successful and the metrics, so you're all having the same conversation. What does success look like? And then your job as a leader is to eliminate those obstacles. You cannot eliminate those obstacles if you're not listening. And if the, office, if the employees are not sitting next to you in the cubicle next to you or the chair next to you, and they're in a different office 3,000 miles away, you have to learn the most strategic listening skills. How do you get them comfortable to talk? How do you understand the pulse of that office? Who do you talk to? Who, who are the good sources? Is it a survey? Is it a phone conversation? Techniques and tactics for having that information flow become really, really important. And that's similar to listening to the consumer. Mm -hmm. If you are selling something to a consumer or you are servicing a consumer, you absolutely need to understand what that consumer is facing. How much disposable income do they have to spend on what you're trying to sell them? What is the competition for that money? Where is their emotional, where's their heart? What's making them feel better as a person? And if what you're doing doesn't make them feel better as a person, you're gonna be lower on that totem pole, right, in terms of choices. And so you think about consumers, listen to the consumers. And consumers are changing every single day. Some things never change. The common theme between business and politics is every consumer cares about their own economic health first. Their health, physical health, and their economic health. Can you afford rent? Can you afford food? That is universal. Right. That is universal globally. Now the question is, 
Is your passion sports? Is your passion arts? Is your passion music? You need to understand your consumer segments. And if you understand those segments and you are a leader, you can then help your team figure out how to speak to those segments and build a deeper relationship, sell them more products, sell them more services. Um, so that knowledge becomes really important. And I'm sure everyone in the room is well aware and probably engaged in this sort of communication with your service provider or any companies that you're dealing with. According to a new study, um, Consumers want to engage with their with Time Warner Cable, with what Verizon, any company on social media, and they want to be able to respond quickly. They want that DM um, for a reimbursement or some sort of incentive. And I think that's right in line with what you're saying. You have to evolve with what the consumer is thinking. Well, I think so, some of the more interesting trends are is one you're speaking to, and we saw this have happening, and it happened very very quickly. One is technology is getting more complex. It's it's actually not getting simpler. And you'll, you'll understand this when you move from being an individual with a cell phone to a home and you're trying to plug in a TV, you're trying to you know, connect a, a computer, you want six different products from different vendors, you need them to all work. Then you add family members or roommates, it gets more complex. And they're looking for people who can make it easy for them. That is also universal. Unless someone is really a tech geek, they want someone to help them make this easier. And that trend is just going to continue because sensors are going into everything. So more devices, more um, products are going to be connected. And that means more pressure on the network. And that means, as a consumer, getting it all to work is going to become more challenging, not less. That's a problem, and it's an opportunity. But the consumers today do not want to call a call center and sit on the phone for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. They want to use their phone to manage their life. And that is a big shift. And they want the input and the solutions, and they want it to be efficient. Mm -hmm. Now, that's put incredible pressure on mature companies because their infrastructure around call centers and their infrastructure around customer service is really heavy infrastructure. And the small companies are struggling with scaling. Okay. So you have two extremes trying to adapt to the fact that the consumer is expecting more immediate feedback. That is also a business opportunity. But you'll see it's going to take time for the technology to catch up with where consumers expect service to be and, and ex the way they want service to work over time. And as you were a leader at Time Warner Cable, you also cultivated future leaders. Yes. What sort of characteristics did you identify in your mentees, or what stood out when you're like, aha, this employee has something in him? Or I think there are three things to think about that have really stood out. I've hired hundreds of people and met thousands and thousands. People I've either mentored, uh, they've worked on my teams, or they've worked on teams that I've worked with. I think if I put this in the context, not of going from your first job to your second job, but lifetime qualities that will set you apart, be a continuous learner. So the people who impress me are the people that don't stop learning when they finish school, but they're always curious about something. Have a passion and be really curious and stay on top of it and read about it and talk to people about it because you'll stay fresh. 
And that becomes really, really important. I know a lot of engineers that hit 40 years old and they didn't stay fresh and they are out of jobs or were trying to reinvent themselves because what they studied in engineering became obsolete and the next generation came along. And that's going to happen with computer science. It's going to happen. It's not, but it's yeah, going to happen with computer science. It happens with banking. So yeah. anyone who's been in banking has parents or relatives in the banking industry. You age out of banking at 40, 45 years old unless you've made it the one person who's made it out of 10,000 to the top you age out okay that happens with so many industries and so many jobs unless you continue to reinvent yourself so the people who impress me when I'm interviewing are people who can talk to me about articles that they recently read and there's a level of curiosity about how things work in the space that they are developing expertise second is persistence, perseverance, grit. It has lots of different words. They all sort of mean the same thing. I have met so many talented people in my career that have a great idea and get four or five people to say they shoot it down, which is expected. They shoot it down. They express their fear about your idea. They express their doubt about their bad idea, it won't work, X, Y, and Z. Okay. If Steve Jobs had been deterred by people shooting down his idea, we wouldn't have Apple today. So what I see is that happens at every level. You're in a marketing department and you have an idea and someone discourages you and you give up. Don't give up. That's when you have to get really strategic and really smart about understanding why the idea was shot down. Understand why, but have the grit to persevere because what the really talented professionals who rise to the tops of companies do is they figure out what information are you missing, okay, that helps you make your idea better. And what do I have to bring to the meeting to get people to yes? So don't give up, get smart. That first idea may be a bad idea, but that's okay. Just figure out why it was a bad idea. Maybe they tried it a year earlier before you were at the company. Okay, once you have that data point, don't be discouraged now. You'll come up with a new idea. But just don't let people shoot you down because it only hurts you. So I look for that grit and willingness to figure out why and then persist. And the third is being able to communicate and take responsibility, take responsibility for failure and success when it comes to communication. The words that I hear in meetings that are the most discouraging are they didn't understand. And the person's projecting and blaming the audience for an idea getting killed. Okay, now if you as an individual want to blame everybody else for your inability to sell in an idea, fine, you're just not going to advance in your career. But if you sit there, if you sit there and say, why didn't they understand it? And if you sit there and figure out what is it about my communication skills, maybe I should have talked to them before the meeting. Maybe I shouldn't have embarrassed them in the meeting because they didn't know the subject matter. They don't like to be caught off guard. So maybe I should have gone and met with them ahead of time, briefed them, and then they would have supported me in the meeting. 
Okay, so I don't mean communication in terms of whether you can stand up and deliver a speech, whether you can write a good essay. I'm talking about how you connect with other people. And people hide behind their emails and their texts and their Snapchats. If you want to build for support for something and you want to move ahead, you need to make time for FaceTime. You need to get to know people. You need to get to know what they like and don't like. Those are communication skills, strategic communication skills. So those three things, grit, strategic communication skills, and curiosity, if you have that, I don't care if you're a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, a graphic artist, they apply. Mm -hmm. They apply. And I think what is really interesting and was surprising when we talked beforehand was you said when you looked around at the other EVPs, there were other females next to you. Absolutely. And I don't know about anyone here, but you wouldn't necessarily think the cable industry is where there's equal representation or you feel like females have a lot of leadership position. Tell me a little bit about that journey and um, a great anecdote is she was actually offered her job when she was five months pregnant. Um, so for all the ladies out there, there is hope. Don't don't be afraid. <laughs> um, first of all, the cable industry, uh, I was in it for 12 years. It was a phenomenal industry. Uh, this is the industry that women jumped into 40 and 50 years ago when the broadcast industry did not create jobs for women. Uh, so the cable industry made jobs available to produce TV shows, to negotiate contracts, to run marketing groups. Uh, it really was the entrepreneurial industry that was also looking for really good talent. They looked everywhere. They were the disruptors. Okay, you don't see them as disruptors today because the industry is 60 years old. Um, but it really took off 30 years ago. And so when MTV launched in 85, okay, so it's not that long ago, um, there were very few jobs in media and entertainment for women. And the cable industry opened up the doors uh, to diversity, all types of, di of diversity. They created organizations like Women in Cable uh, telecommunications that got women in the industry talking to each other. Because initially there were a small number of women in the industry, so they didn't just rely on those conversations inside a company. They created opportunities for networking across the entire industry. And that's one of the last 10 or 12 years, probably no 500 to 800 women across the industry because of these organizations. Inside the company, I was the um, third female EVP, but one was retiring. So it was going from two to one, back up to two, and another one was then appointed within a few weeks of myself. But very quickly, there were five of us. And what was very interesting about that was we could do more to bring other women up through the company and mentor as a group and have programs inside our company as a group. So it really does help to get to a critical mass. It's very hard if, if it's 2% or 10%. It's much easier when it's 40%. Uh, so the environment was very conducive. It, it was a competitive environment. It was, everybody was working hard. You better have thick skin. You better figure out how to be effective. Uh, all of that was standard practice. Uh, it moved quickly. I mean, in just my tenure, we launched broadband, we launched phone, we launched, you know, VOD had just rolled out. We had rolled out advanced advertising, so it was constantly reinventing itself. Um, but, and, and I think by the time uh, the company was sold, 
The company absolutely was thriving and saw the benefits solidly of building a more diverse workforce. And the industry is continuing to do it. Excellent. I would love to open it up to questions from the audience. Yep, up here. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I heard that you I heard you say that you know you were taught how to speak to CEOs and you went but I think that's something that we're lacking now like me like how can I learn how to speak to a CEO how can I you know, if I don't have a mentor or anybody like you know to look to you know am I just going to read books or like I really want to be in the position to do those things like how do I learn So there are different paths to learning it isn't um it isn't necessarily one approach. But if you are in a job and you don't readily have access to the C-suite, I think this is an opportunity for you to either go out and find a not-for-profit that has executives on the board, volunteer, be visible, and, and get access to them. Because what you find, and I did this as well, I actively, I. I went to London and worked for three and a half years. Had to come back to the US and reintroduce myself. I mean, when you're gone for four years as digital is taking off in the United States, you can't just come back and reconnect with everybody. And so I tried to figure out what groups I could give back to and join to get to know people and really understand um, what was happening in the industry, have access to people at all different levels, and the, it's practice. So when I was in the Senate, when I say I was taught, I was taught because I was really just thrown into it. And I might be with one CEO, and I could tell his eyes were glazing over. <laughs> okay, he, whether it was short attention span or whether it was what I was saying, I was losing the audience. And so I'd go to the senator and say, I'm losing the audience. And you know what he'd say to me? Just stop talking. You'll get the <laughs> audience back. Now at 22 years old, right? At 22 years old, to be aware enough to know when you're talking to someone, they're not paying attention. And I don't care if that's at a bar or whether that's in a business meeting. You just stop talking halfway through the sentence. Guess what happens? He won't even notice. Yeah, well, most of them will notice. They're like, oh, I thought it was too cool, so I didn't have to listen to you. And then suddenly, you have acted cool. You haven't acted insecure. So part of, part of just paying attention to the dynamic of the people that you're with, but also asking good questions. So, and I'm still practicing this, by the way. Figuring out what are icebreaker questions. So if you're talking to a CEO, you might say to him or her, what was your journey? What was your first job? And draw them out. Because if you're in a position when you're trying to figure out what's relevant to them, so how do you connect with them? How do you make your time with them productive? Getting them to talk about themselves gives you the information you need to figure out how to be relevant. So I don't know what you're studying or what you're interested in, but the best way to figure it out is to get them talking first. And you talk less. 
So have a few, three questions that are handy that you always ask when you meet someone for the first time and stroke their ego, show an interest. Did you play sports in college? Did that help you get your first job? How has it helped you in the career? I mean, these can be really simple questions. You'll find, and, and by the way, if you know you're gonna meet that CEO, then Google them. Okay, so one of the big mistakes that I see people make is they have a chance to go to a reception, a meeting, and they don't look ahead to see who's gonna be there. They don't call ahead and say, who do you expect to be there? And then go and do some research. Oh, I saw that you went to UPenn. You know, what, did you love UPenn? You know, did the network help you get a job? I, I'm making it up, but you can, you can come up with those questions and then you just perfect it over time. And it's just practice and practice and practice. And if you lose their attention, you haven't talked about the right thing. Yes. Oh, yeah. Hi, um, good morning. My name is Z, and I'm a rising sophomore at UPenn. Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, because you were talking about just people that were discouraging you and to ignore those kind of people yes. because it will propel you forward. But um, in this climate, there's a lot of pressure to be pre-professional, especially at my school, being an Ivy League school. It's yes. a lot of pressure to be pre-professional. And, and media and entertainment, it's not a very set uh, path into, towards success. A lot of, not a set path toward a professional or a career. Yes. So I was wondering, how do you deal with those not direct discouragements, but indirect discouragement that you hear about from other people that or around that you're not going to get a job you're not going to have a good paying job right out of college or that you're not going to have a set path out of college because you're not doing a career that is too pre-professional it's more of a general education that we're getting um, okay I don't know I don't know you very well and I think <laughs> I'm very good at context for example but my best advice is I think the people who end up really distinguishing themselves are the ones that don't do what everybody else is doing, okay? Because if you're just, so for example, I have tons of friends at Apple, Google, and Facebook, okay? But if you walk into those companies, very impressive companies, everybody's like you, meaning they're all Ivy League, right? They all want to work at a tech company. It is harder to distinguish you because now you have 500 people who on a resume look very similar. If you think about where you want to be in two years, if you want to go back to business school or you want to, you know you want to be an executive, then you want to think about, I functionally want to learn everything about finance. And so I'd like to go learn about finance and media and entertainment. Or I'd functionally like to learn everything about marketing. And I am going to go where I can learn the most and I get the most responsibility because they're a little strapped for resources. Because if they're throwing 100 people at marketing at Facebook, okay, then you're not going to distinguish yourself and you're not going to necessarily learn as much. But if you go to a company and there are only two people doing marketing, you're going to be doing all of marketing. You're going to learn every single aspect of marketing. So that's why I'm saying I don't know where you're trying to go, but don't get caught up in the sort of, oh, but that place isn't cool, or uh, that's not going to lead you to a professional job. What you want is sort of a soundtrack to say, well, I'm really comfortable that my professional path is going to be marketing, or I'm really comfortable that I'm 
pre-executive. I'm going to be a business executive. And the strongest business executives have worked at at least three companies, and they've worked in at least three functions. And that's going to prepare me best to be an executive. So I almost don't care where I go. I'm going to pick culture, and I'm going to pick opportunity. You see where I'm? And just sound really confident. Okay, don't get caught up in the, oh, everybody doesn't see the cachet of being there. You actually may make more money, too, at a company that isn't, like, so exciting. Because um, the faster you rise, the faster you can increase your own salary. So really try to understand what it is you want to learn and where you think you want to go. And then it's easy to figure out the soundtrack afterwards. I don't know if that's helpful, but don't let people discourage you. Never let people discourage you, ever. Okay, that is probably the saddest thing that I witness in life, is people are nervous. So often if you're talking to a friend, you're getting their first nervous reaction. They don't really want to discourage you. It's their anxiety and they're projecting it on you, right? You have enough anxiety yourself. Don't bring on everybody else's, right? And that's really what happens. It's like, oh, I'm not sure I want to go live in London. That could be really scary. Well, go live in London if you can live in London. Go live in Paris because you're going to know more and become a bigger, richer, you know, more fulfilled person the more you open yourself up to experiences. So process anxiety, keep yours you know, to, to a minimum, and don't take on the burdens of others. Unfortunately, I'm getting the 30-second <laughs> mark. I can't squeeze in another question, but please join me in thanking Joan. Good for luck. Good luck. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. One of the best ways to build your network is by volunteering with different organizations. There are professional organizations like Women in Cable Telecommunications and the National Association for Multi-Ethnicity in Communications, that's NAMIC for short. And of course, there's also the Future Now Media Foundation. We're always looking for great volunteers. So I encourage you to research different nonprofit and professional organizations and volunteer. It's one of the best ways to network, build relationships, and learn new skills. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Future Now Media Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Till next time, I'm Peggy Kim. And remember, a future now is a future one.